Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past to the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome to Haunting History Podcast. I'm Kat, your host, and today we're doing something a little different. I don't have Haley or Tress with me today, um, although Haley is here and running the control board. Today I have a special guest, Craig Owens, a friend, a personal friend of mine, who is the creator of the Facebook page Bizarre Los Angeles and the website BizarreLA.com and the author of an amazing book called Haunted by History. It's a book about the haunted hotels in Southern, they're all in Southern California, right, Craig? Right. I have it sitting on my coffee table, and I I don't know why I just went blank right there, but it's haunted hotels in Southern California. But today we're going to be talking, I mean, we'll, t- we'll definitely talk about his book because it's amazing, and again, it's sitting on my coffee table. But primarily what we're going to talk about is haunted Hollywood today, which is probably the reason why I found Craig in the first place was because I love, obviously, anything haunted. And my passion is Hollywood, old Hollywood, whenever – I remember the first time I went to Hollywood and I felt like I was home. I felt like it was where I was supposed to be, that I'd been there before, everything was so familiar. And when – I, how long ago did you start Haunted um, – or I'm sorry, Bizarre Los Angeles on Facebook? I, I started Bizarre Los Angeles, I want to say it was, uh, it was around uh, – it was in the fall of 2010. I was going to say, it's been a long time. I was actually, the reason why I remember this is because I had a, uh, I had a third child. I was expecting a third child. And so I was at home on call waiting for my wife to, you know, say it's time. And, uh, it was very nerve wracking. So I decided to get my, in order to get my mind off of, uh, off of the, um, the childbirth that was going to happen any time that I just decide I would start this page, uh, and uh, which would be devoted to things that I loved and things that I had stored in my mind, in my brain for many years. And I didn't advertise it. I just put it up there uh, and decided to focus it on old Hollywood stars and anecdotes and forgotten stories. And it just took off from there. Uh, it was amazing how many other people that also shared that interest that found me and started following. I know. I was so excited when I, I, I think I've honestly been following you for probably about eight years now. We haven't, we finally didn't, we've been talking, I would say seven or eight years and we finally met in person. It's probably a year ago, almost exactly. Right. It was last year. Yeah, it was yes. Last year. Yes. I, in a cemetery. At a cemetery. What a great place to have a first meeting. Huh? Of all places. Unfortunately, it was not in Hollywood, but it was a cemetery. I was so excited when I found your Facebook page. I felt like, oh my gosh, this this person knows my soul. Like he's talking about everything that I love and everything I've researched on my own for no reason other than I researched it and you know stored it in the back of my mind. I didn't do anything with it. So when I saw all the stuff that you were posting on the page, I was just like, oh, I, f- I, I found my soulmate. I was so excited. So I've been following you for oh, eight yeah. years. And um, today I wanted specifically today, and I think we're going to probably split this into two separate episodes. But today I really wanted to talk about some of my favorite stories and 
I've always had sort of an obsession, and I, I believe you and I are close to the same age. I, I feel, and I wonder, I'm curious if you feel the same way, that you were born in the wrong generation. Yes, uh, I definitely have an affinity. Well, you know, it's weird. I started out growing up being like a total child of the 60s. I was born in the 60s and and do have vague, you know, but very colorful memories of the late 60s and uh, early 70s. So I, I really, you know, I knew who the Beatles were by the time I was two. I could name them and uh, and the monkeys and all that. And so the 60s thing was where I was uh, much of my time. However, as I grew older, I started seeing that the 60s actually were quite a bit of it was uh, the culture and the arts were steeped in the 1920s. And then I started seeing the additional parallels, the, uh, you know, the drug use and the overdoses and the the, the problems with celebrity overdoses in particular uh, were kind of mirrored in the 20s as they were in the late 60s, early 70s. Just you better had, hidden. You know, the, you had the Beatles, you know, singing 1920s type standards, and then you, you had the Paisley, and you had all, all this stuff, and you start seeing these patterns, you know, uh, this, the same materials and same patterns and kind of the same carefree lifestyle of the 1920s. So then... I started getting interested in the 1920s, and uh, I remember as a kid seeing, you know, silent films on on TV, and I'd see the the black light posters of Valentino and and Gloria Swanson, you know, as a kid. So uh, there was definitely a mashup in my brain of uh, 60s and 20s. So I, uh, as an adult, I started poking around in that, and I really fell in love with that era, and the 30s as well, uh, and then it even, it's even gone back even further into the 19-teens now, so That's I so definitely funny. have an affinity for the early 20th century and the different styles, and, and when I started taking photos kind of replicating that era, I just found that Every generation, whether it's even 1900s or even 1890s, has has its beauty and its bizarreness. Uh, it's bizarreness kind of for wacky, sure. Oh yeah, the, the wacky thought processes that were going on then, and the fads, and and just the way of life that would seem so strange to us today, which was quite normal back then. So yeah, I. I guess if there was anything I wish I could be would be a time traveler. So I try to do that the best I can through my own research and photography. Yeah, we that's so funny. We we actually we have totally different stories and I have no I I'm younger than you. I guess I didn't realize that. I am, I don't have any recollection of the 60s or 70s. My thing with silent movies was that my parents were older. My parents were much older when they had my sister and I and my dad was the youngest of 10. And he grew up listening to the radio for two reasons. He was 18 years younger than his oldest brother. So his oldest brother grew up listening to radio shows. So then when my dad was born, he just automatically followed what his brothers did, even though TVs had come out. They could never afford a television, so they listened to the radio. So my dad had an affinity for old radio shows and then silent films, things that not, weren't even necessarily his generation. They were his siblings' generation. So I remember my dad used to take us on Saturdays to a pizza parlor that only played silent films. 
And so that's where my love came of silent films is I would watch the old um, Keystone Cops and Buster Keaton and look at the beautiful women that they always had in their films. And I was young. I was like nine or ten the first time that I read a book about a silent um, movie star. And I think it was Buster Keaton was the first book I ever read. It may not. I I believe it was Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd. It was Harold Lloyd. And that's when I fell in love was because it was through my dad. My dad loved silent old radio shows, loved silent movies. And that's where I fell in love with all the different characters. I would ask my dad who they were and kind of do research. And today I wanted to talk about some of my favorite ones. Sure. My One of my favorite movie stars of all times was back from back then was Thelma Todd. And she was tell you a little bit about Thelma Todd and I found her she was probably one of the first ones I found her when I when I started following Bizarre Los Angeles was um a story you had talked about about Thelma Todd and for our listener who doesn't know who she is because I don't know that the podcast generation is that hip on old silent and 1920s actresses but Thelma Todd was born in 1906 she was an American actress appearing in about 120 pictures, and back then they called them pictures instead of movies, between 1926 and 1935. So for nine years, she was in 120 films. Um, she's best remembered yeah. for her comedic roles. Um, but her life ended very young. She was only 29. And this is where I'm going to let you take over and tell us what, what happened to her. Well, let me back up. Uh, yeah, she was a, a star, uh, very well-loved in the uh, Hollywood circles back then. She always, uh, she had this blonde uh, mop of hair and she fluctuated between playing vamps and uh, comedic vamps and, uh, and then comedy roles. And so she was signed with uh, Hal Roach for many years and they tried to kind of, Hal Roach tried to create her, as kind of a female would pair her with another comedian and try to replicate Laurel and Hardy a little bit, except there wasn't like a a super big guy and a super thin guy, but you know, two pals that would get in and out of, out of trouble. But she also was very attractive. She was beautiful. So she, she could play a romantic lead or the other woman, you know, but she always played kind of these wild, uh, but still likable characters. Every now and then she'll play, you know, maybe the, the other woman that comes between the, the leading lady and the leading man. But in most cases, um, she was very noticeable and she even appeared in films with, you know, Buster Keaton and Laurel and Hardy, as well as serious, more serious stars as well. Well, she was found, so, yeah, she, they she found was, her from a beauty contest, didn't they? I believe so. Um, she was born, let's see, in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Uh, she had originally, I believe, wanted to be a, a school teacher, or was thinking that that would be her her uh, vocation. But she did enter a beauty pageant, and she won Miss Massachusetts at the age of twenty in nineteen twenty-five. Yeah, she was yeah, like that's. And she went on to run for Miss America. She didn't make it. But she did uh, attract a Hollywood talent scout that brought her out. And so she signed with Paramount Studios first in 1925. And she was enrolled uh, in their acting school. 
and she started making her, you know, she started making her first appearances actually in silent films. And then in 1929, that's when she signed with Hal Roach. And she was like a leading lady with uh, some of his staple comedians, Charlie Chase, Harry Langdon. And then, you know, they did pair her with uh, Laurel and Hardy. The the person that I was trying to say that they paired her up with as a, as a comedy duo was Zazu Pitts. Oh, that's who right. Was, was a lot homelier than, uh, than, than, uh, Thelma Todd, but they had just this great chemistry together and they did some two reelers as what they were called back then. And then after Zazu moved in off, uh, to do other projects and Zazu was a star in her own right, they paired her, they paired Thelma Todd with Patsy Kelly, another, uh, less beautiful character comedy actress i just love they didn't take themselves so seriously back then i love these beautiful women i mean same with like carol lombard or ginger rogers or any of the the big names back then was they 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 were fine doing slapstick comedy and being silly and goofy and even though they were beautiful women they didn't they weren't prim and proper and i think that's what i loved about the stories about thelma todd is that she was just to every girl she could be friends with anyone and was friends with anyone and just kind of I don't know I think that's what I find so fascinating is that they were famous they were rich they played in Hollywood and they just didn't take themselves oh yeah they played hard and they partied hard and Thelma Todd had a reputation for partying pretty hard Uh, yeah she you know she was originally billed as the ice cream blonde I don't know if you know that. I didn't know. I didn't never heard that. That's crazy. I love how they used to give everybody names. Yeah, they yeah they gave everybody the ice cream. You know, a different moniker. Hers was the ice cream blonde, and then I believe uh, she was called Hot Toddy a little bit later. Yeah, and there certainly was that book written about her life and death called Hot Toddy, which was one of my favorites. We were talking um, about that before we started recording. That Hot Toddy was one of my favorite books about Thelma Todd and. And you were saying that people don't necessarily agree with that book or, or think that was a good depiction of her? Uh, a lot of the real serious Thelma Todd historians, uh, especially ones focusing on her death, you know, they, they thought that the Hot Toddy book uh, wasn't accurate enough. But um, it, it still was a great book and a great introductory to Thelma Todd and the mystery surrounding her death. By the way, Hot Toddy was a name that Thelma Todd gave herself. I was going to say, I think that's, that. she called herself Hot Toddy. That, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Well, so she, you know, she had uh, some unhappy relationships. She had some weight problems. Uh, Hal Roach and various stu- studios were constantly getting her to, you know, thin down and she would put on about 10 pounds. So she was constantly, you know, kind of fluctuating, but she, she, she still was quite a bombshell and quite a looker. She was never what you would call overweight by any means. It's just that, you know, when you drink and you're partying a lot, she would get puffy. And, uh, yeah, you do get puffy at times. And she, she, she would comment about it. That's another thing I liked about. Thelma Todd, as she she had a tendency when she did speak, she uh, she was very honest. That's why I see. That's why I liked about her. Uh, I feel like she was approachable. I think is maybe the word I'm looking for. Yes, she was. 
So going back to her death, her death was um, was cons- is still in a mostly an unsolved uh, death. No, it's not some considered a cold case, have, right? Uh, different. Well, some people have different theories as to how she died, but let's let's just get right into it. Um, she had decided at one point she wanted to invest in her in a side business. So she had met, uh, I believe she had met a movie director named Roland West in 1930 on a yacht at Cantalina Island. They had a romantic affair. He was married, but uh, they had a a tempestuous affair, I guess is how I, I would categorize it. Uh, West at the time was married to another silent film actress who wasn't doing so well at the time, and her name was Jewel Carmen. Um, anyway, uh, Roland West did cast Thelma Todd as a female lead in one of his films in the following year in 1931 called Corsair, and they continued to have their off-and-on love affair behind the camera. Uh, she also... Todd in 1932 briefly married a uh, a gangster. You knew who you, we were talking about him earlier. Yeah, Pat DeChico. I believe that's how you say it. Yeah, yeah, uh, Pasqual. She was she was a she was DeChico. She was attracted to the to the bad guys or the guys that were not available to her. Oh yeah, no, she she liked she liked the bad boys, and that was one of her uh, problems. Now DeChico you know, was barely staying out of trouble with the law, but he had connections with Lucky Luciano, um, supposedly. The most, one of the most famous and, uh, mafia members. Once they got married in 1932, we're talking Todd and Tachico, I mean, uh, it was like doomed from the beginning and they were fighting a lot. Um, then, in fact, that, that marriage, what, lasted two years, maybe? I, I think they divorced in 1934. Okay. And then following the divorce, Todd went back to Roland West, and they became kind of a off-and-on thing again. But together, I believe they invested a property uh, uh, in Malibu, between Malibu and Santa Monica. Pacific Palisades, right? Right, and, and that's what they did. They owned uh, and, and formed a uh, restaurant. They took this building that was already standing and they converted it to Todd's Sidewalk Cafe. And so they became essentially business partners as opposed to yes. yeah. being in a relationship. That's why, I had to, that's why I had to introduce Roland West early, as far back as 1930. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't want to it was just over him. something that evolved in that direction. Um, so I, the address is uh, for this, this uh, restaurant was 17531. I want to say Positano Road. It's still standing, isn't I'm it? I'm terrible. Yeah, I'm terrible at pronouncing certain words, but uh, 17531 Positano Road. It, it's practically off the the one uh, highway, Highway 1, uh, that runs along the beach. Which is why I read so that she opened the restaurant, because she couldn't find a restaurant that you could sit and eat and see the water, the ocean. Right, right. Well, it it had, in fact, it uh, had a couple of names. The one was Sidewalk Cafe, and the other, some people would refer to it as the Roadside Cafe, because it was literally right alongside the road that uh, 
ran alongside the Pacific Ocean between uh, Malibu and uh, Malibu and Santa Monica. Now, what, what ended up happening is that uh, she. It was a two-story structure, and the first story, I believe, was the restaurant itself, this little sidewalk cafe. Then there was a second floor, and it was called the Joya Cafe. And this one was where the more the the film stars, when they came to visit, or the luminaries, you know, the producers, the directors, they would go up to the Joya Cafe, and that's where they would dine. It's... um. It, the top part was more of a nightclub than a than a restaurant. The bottom was more of a restaurant, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. And then she had her headquarters or her personal quarters on the second floor as well, but it was behind. It was behind the building. It was at the back of the building, I should say. And so that's where she would stay when she would be spending the night, you know, in Malibu and whatnot. I'm not sure where she other places that she might have lived or stayed, but that was that was her quarters. Well, as the story goes, and this is the real story, um, she and Wes did not always get along, even with the restaurant, and they often quarreled. Uh, Wes seemed to, you know, people that seemed to know what was going on at the time thought that Wes was very jealous of Todd, um, and Todd was kind of a free spirit, although in interviews it sounded like she definitely had her head square on her shoulders. I mean, she was a, she was a good business person, uh, and she was very hands-on with the day-to-day operations of that restaurant when she wasn't at the studio making films. But on December 14th, 1935, she would die on that property under mysterious circumstances. And what the best that they could come up with uh, was that earlier in the evening, Thelma Todd had been drinking at a very popular night spot on the Sunset Strip called the Trocadero Club. Its address was uh, uh, 8610 Sunset Boulevard. And she was there with another just a film star just beginning her career, and it was Ida Lupino. Ida Lupino and Thelma Todd were pals back then, and so they were at the club. And while they were at the club, there was some drama. And the drama involved Thelma Todd's ex-husband walking in, Pat DeChico, and he was with uh, another actress named Margaret Lindsay as his date, and apparently DeChico was snubbing Todd or just trying to ignore her, and Thelma Todd was getting angry. And Thelma Todd had been hitting the bottle. She, she had quite a bit of alcohol, supposedly, in her system. And they got into a big argument in the lobby towards the end of the night before the, the nightclub closed. Uh, DeChico left. Thelma Todd stayed behind. She started drinking even more. And that she had told Ida Lupino that she was having uh, uh, a romantic affair with a wealthy San Francisco businessman. So, according to the police reports and the best that we could we know, 
uh, between 2.45 and 3 a.m., Thelma Todd left the Trocadero Club and that she had told everyone before she left that she would see them the following day at a party thrown at another friend's house, that friend being uh, Mrs. Wallace Reed, uh, the the widow of a of Wally Wally Reed, the film star, silent film star. Well, she never really made it home in that time frame that that people thought that she should have been home at her Malibu place, and uh, supposedly Sid Grauman. I'm name dropping a lot because there are a lot of witnesses. Yeah, that's okay. I love it. I hope that people are googling left and right and learning who all these people are. Yeah, Sid Grauman, who you know built and ran the Grauman's Chinese Theater as well as the Egyptian Theater and several movie palaces in L.A. He was there at the Trocadero and he witnessed what was going on, and everyone knew that Thelma Todd at least behaved intoxicated. So supposedly he calls up Roland West, who's back at home. You know, uh, he had his home uh, in an uh, also near the property. I thought he actually lived the, on the property. He didn't live in a different room, or uh, I, I would have to look that up, or you can look that up, or the listener can look it up. He he lived really close by, and. Uh, Close enough to where Sid Grauman called him and said, better check on Thelma. She's had a little bit too much to drink, and she was angry, uh, upset about something. So, you know, um, you might want to check to make sure she made it back okay. Uh, in fact, I think the, the, the word, the phrase that Grauman used literally was a bit under the influence. And Thelma Todd didn't drive herself, by the way. She was she, she had, had a chauffeur. chauffeur. Yeah. Yeah, who took her back to her house. However, what really happened, uh, still this has been the source of mystery uh you know, even to this day. Uh basically what happened was uh Thelma Todd had a personal assistant and her name was Mae Whitehead. And around 10.30 a.m., May Whitehead went to the garage behind the, uh, behind the restaurant. And she went there for the reason of trying to ready the, she thought Thelma Todd was already home and in bed. And so she was, her instructions were to get the car ready to take Thelma Todd to the studio the next morning. That was her routine. So at 10.30 in the morning, she opens up the garage, and lo and behold, she finds Thelma Todd passed out in the front seat of the car. In the driver's seat. Yeah, in the driver's seat. After being driven home. That's that's always that's the thing that always confused me. She was driven well, she home had by more a than chauffeur. One car. She had more than one car. She had her own personal car. And yes, so they found her in the front seat of... <laughs> one of the cars and uh, she was actually uh, heading to the studio to, to work on a Laurel and Hardy film called that Bohemian girl. Uh, as soon as Whitehead saw Todd's body laying in the front seat, slumped over the, in the front, uh, front uh, in the, over seat, the steering wheel. she, she contacted a person named Charles Smith who worked at the cafe 
and he also moonlighted as an assistant director who uh, worked with Roland, who had worked with Roland West on a number of films, and uh, and Smith was literally slept above the garage where Todd was found dead. Uh, so she went to him for help. He had never heard the door, uh, the garage door open or close, never heard any sounds that uh, earlier that night. Uh, so they went down there, and it was a phaeton. That was the name of the car that, uh, that Thelma Todd was found inside. They checked it out. The car battery was dead. Had still over two gallons of gas inside the tank, uh, but they didn't smell any suspicious smells at the time. Um, so they called the police. The police arrived and they smudged everything. Um, they said literally when the police investigated the death scene, they found a smudged handprint on the door and a key to her apartment inside her purse. However, the coloring of her skin inside the car suggested carbon monoxide poisoning, that she had died from carbon monoxide poisoning. But they found there blood, There were bruises too. on her lip. Huh? They found blood, too. Yeah. I was about to say that her lip was bruised, and there was blood streaked down her face. She had a broken nose, and some of her dental fillings had dislodged, but her makeup was perfectly intact. Her fingernails were undamaged. Uh, so it didn't look quite like a fight, but at the same time, it looked like she had sustained some damage to her face. She was wearing the same clothes that she was, that she had worn at the Trocadero party. And they, st- they found $20,000 worth of jewelry on her body. So, uh, her shoes were also very clean, and uh, so they they were mystified as to how she ended up dying. With her shoes clean, it means that it looked like she hadn't, you know, walked up and down the steps trying to get in, or you know, it, it, it nothing suggested like a fight or a robbery. So they took her body to the morgue, and they they did an autopsy on Thelma Todd's corpse and they found that she had 0.13 blood alcohol reading but that they did confirm that she had 75 to 80 percent carbon monoxide inside her blood systems so it was saturated with carbon monoxide they also found peas and carrots inside of her stomach which is kind of gross but you know they were trying to be thorough um so Oddly enough, the district attorney's office ruled it a suicide. However, this was quickly challenged uh, because there were just too many questions going on. There was nothing about Thelma Todd's behavior that would ever have suggested that she committed suicide, and everyone knew that. So they decided to open an inquest. They brought in a bunch of people to ask, and they tried to put together a timeline of what could have possibly happened uh, in Thelma Todd's final hours. And they interviewed one of the people they interviewed was Roland West. And Roland West had claimed that 
uh, he had told them that he had locked the apartment door at 2 a.m. And uh, that earlier in that evening, he had threatened Thelma Todd that if she stayed out past the curfew, he wasn't going to be there to let her into her apartment. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I had always read was that he that she had gone to the garage to get warm because she couldn't get into the apartment because Roland West had locked her out. Right. Now, according to the chauffeur that dropped uh, Thelma Todd off at her place, when the police interviewed him, he told them that, yeah, he dropped her off sometime between 3.15 and 3.30 a.m., or at least there's conflicting accounts. Uh, so it, that's roughly the window of time when the chauffeur was said to have dropped off uh, Thelma Todd at her home. And uh, he described her mood as quiet and downtrodden. And when he offered to help her up the stairs to her apartment, she refused. Um, there were other, some, some seemed to be kind of red herrings floating around that there was another car parked off to the side, a brown Packard, um, that might have been suspicious because some people were thinking that this wasn't suicide, that this was in fact murder. Well, in fact, go ahead. I was going to say there's, there's three different theories, accidental suicide from her trying to stay warm, but the problem was the yeah. contusions on her lip didn't make sense. And then two was that she actually didn't care she, that she actually tried to commit suicide, which I will never buy. And then three I will never was buy that either. Three, yeah. three was the the murder because of the blood and the contusion and the way something about the way she was almost placed in the in the car to make it look like it right. was accidental, like it, just the way the scene was. But I guess the problem with the scene was that um, the the maid or the helper, or assistant, whatever, found her, and then the other guy came down, and they believe that they may have touched her or moved her to see if she was alive. So the crime scene was kind of monkeyed with before the police or the investigators even got there. Right. And, and you know, Hal Roach was uh, of little help. Um, and I had read somewhere that I think it may have been Zizu Pitts uh, because Zizu Pitts would talk about Thelma Todd's death. Uh, and so it, she... She kept hearing, you know, the rumors that were floating around Hollywood. But one of the reasons why Hal Roach kind of backed away and wasn't very helpful at the inquest was that he was afraid that Lucky Luciano or De Chico, the mob, had taken out Thelma Todd. Well, and then the, one of the rumors that were swirling around is that Thelma Todd had and Lucky Luciano were an item and that Lucky Luciano was insisting that he open up uh, a casino up in the upstairs uh, private cafe of Thelma Todd's uh, restaurant, and that Thelma Todd said absolutely not over my dead body. See, and I, the only reason and refused Luciano's offer. And the only reason I'm not buying a mob hit as part of her death theory is because after she died, the mob didn't just automatically move in on Roland West and open, you know, their casino either. So I'm thinking if they killed her because she wouldn't let them do what they wanted to do, I think they would have went ahead and did it after they killed her. But they didn't do that. 
Yeah, well, Luciano, you know, had an alibi. I mean, he supposedly wasn't even in town. Not that he couldn't have sent torpedoes to do it, but it didn't quite make sense. Uh, but at the time, Hal Roach didn't want to run afoul of any shakedown by the, the mob, so he kept quiet about it. But th- those were the thoughts that were running through his mind at the time, was, was this a mob hit? So, And a lot of people got cold feet because of the rumors that it could have been that were going on at that time. However, it really doesn't add up either that the mob would have would have done that to to her. Another thing another reason why they they uh why it doesn't seem like a mob hit is if the chauffeur dropped off Thelma Todd around 3:30, let's just say around 3:30 a.m. Uh this gives a weird two-hour window because the L.A. County surgeon, when they concluded their autopsy, they concluded that her time of death actually was between 5 a.m. and 8 a.m. Which kind of goes with the whole accidental carbon monoxide thing, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, the best thing, uh, I think the cutting to the chase, what I think really happened and what makes the most sense to me is that she arrived when tried to go upstairs to her apartment or whatnot. Uh, the door was locked. She couldn't get in. Uh, she might have been too intoxicated to know that real, remember that she had the key to the apartment. Not sure. Um, she went back to the car because it was cold and she started the engine to keep warm. Um, and that she fell asleep, passed out, and then she might have woken up groggily briefly, uh, to try to get out of the garage, but she collapsed. And, and that's hit her when lip. she collapsed, she hit her head and, uh, broke her nose and, and had some blood. And then she just, she died. I mean, her last effort was to try to get out of that car. I know that's but why she was I, already too poisoned to do it. That's what I've always believed. They've always made it such a controversy of how she died, and honestly, I've always sort of leaned toward the fact that it was just an accidental thing. She was trying to stay warm. She screw roll and rest for locking her out, and that's okay. I'll just go sleep in my car until daylight. And she probably didn't know the dangers of carbon monoxide or what could happen to you. Right. I mean, a lot of people didn't know that back in 1935 or whatever. So I've always leaned towards the fact that it was probably accidental. I know that it's one of the unsolved mysteries of L.A., but I just don't, I don't know. I don't, it doesn't, the mob thing has never resonated with me. But now I've heard um, that her building is haunted. Now her restaurant is still standing. I don't believe that the garage is still standing, but I believe that the, the restaurant is still standing. Now there's ghost stories involved with the building now. Right. Yeah. Well, lo- let me just back up one one thing. The reason why mm-hmm. they think that uh, why I think that she actually tried to get into her apartment and didn't is that police, when they did their research, they did see where it looked like someone was trying to kick in the back door of her place. They found scuff marks and she would have done on the that? door. And so she might have tried to get up there try to kick in, let in, try to wake up Roland West to let her in. Roland West would not do that, so she went back to the car. Now, here's the odd thing. When the when the person 
Whitehead, when she came in, the garage door was closed. She opened it up and found the body inside the car. Now, on Roland West's deathbed, and this is the story that Zazie Pitts was telling in her senior years as well, is that supposedly he admitted to accidentally killing Thelma Todd. Do you think he went down and closed the garage? He closed the garage door. Oh, no. That she had ran the car and the heater when she was, uh, when she was uh, knowing that you have to keep the garage door open. So she kept it open. And then Roland came down, saw the car, didn't realize Thelma Todd was slumped over asleep or whatever. I don't know why he didn't reach over and turn the, the ignition off, off, but supposedly he admitted privately to a few people that he had, he had done it. Maybe he did it out of anger. Maybe he did it out of confusion or whatnot, but he closed the garage door and, and he would not fess up to that and uh, to the police, but he kept it in. And then on his deathbed, he supposedly admitted it. Oh, that's awful. And, and that's the story. Now, the following day, people were claiming to have seen Thelma Todd driving around town or riding around town uh, on several different, uh, in a couple of different locations, primarily in Hollywood. One of the people that claimed that she saw Th- uh, Thelma Todd alive was Roland West's estranged wife, Carmen Jewell. Now, I think that was Carmen's attempt to cover for her husband. Right. Because she knew that he had done it, accidentally killed her. And so to throw off the police off the scent, she said she saw, um, she, she saw Thelma Todd riding around with someone that looked like a gangster. Mm. So she was the one that was trying to throw the red herring that it might have been a mob hit. And most of your serious historians have already said, well, that's what she was doing, is that Carmen, even though Carmen Jewell was no friend of Thelma Todd, in fact, she resented her for carrying on an affair with her husband, she did cover for her husband by making up this false claim. So that kind of wraps up the Thelma Todd. Uh, I, I personally believe that it was, uh, you know, Roland West did close the door on the garage after denying Thelma Todd entrance into her own uh, apartment. She went to her, she was intoxicated, heavily intoxicated, not in sound mind. She went back to her car, turned on the heater, and fell asleep. Right. And that's when the door closed and and uh, she died of carbon monoxide poisoning. It's now, back to the ghost stories, yes. <laughs> now we can go it back is, to the ghost stories. Um, this, yeah. Now, she died. What it was, is supposed to be haunted. Yeah. The, the building where she, where she lived and had her restaurant is supposed to be haunted. Right. It's no longer a restaurant. I mean, it changed hands many times. Uh, it, at one point, it was... Uh, Owned by, I want to say, a company that that uh, what they who they are, but um, it it was kind of a private little business, and they and apparently they kept um, 
a lot of her furnishings, a lot of the original furnishings for her apartment was up in her apartment for, for decades. Oh, that's so crazy. Um, yeah, I know. And then around 2002, um, let's see, the, the location was put up for sale. And uh, let me see what I can find on this. Yeah, it said on the deathbed. Oh, you know who you know who Roland West supposedly confessed this to? Who? He he confessed this to uh, another actor that had been in several films with him, uh, an actor named Chester Morris. Oh, that's and interesting. That he said that he had uh, in in 1952 West uh, told Chester Morris that he had followed Todd to the garage after she had been banging on the the door to get in and that he had closed the door to prevent her from leaving, not realizing that the carbon monoxide would kill her. Oh my gosh. That makes so much more sense that he closed it, not trying to hurt her, but to stop her from drunk driving. Yeah. Didn't want her leaving. So, and what's, what's weird is, um, I wonder if she had already started the engine when he closed closed it or maybe she she may not have yeah she might have just passed out or was passed and then she didn't realize the garage door was closed it got cold she turned on the car to get warm thinking that that door was open but it wasn't that's so sad now the um just last year the building was for sale for just under eight million dollars, you know, because California property okay, values. Right. Okay. So it 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 was for sale recently, correct? And um, let's see, uh, the Paulus Productions owned it. Um, let's see. Okay. Following West's death in 1952, uh, his widow, well, I believe at the time, Lola Lane. Uh, who owned that property, remarried, and she became a Catholic. She then leased the bottom floor of the property to Father Elwood E. Bud Kieser, or Kaiser, in the 1960s, and then he, she deeded the entire building to Paulist Productions, okay. the production company specializing in faith-based films and television projects. Interesting. So that's that's why the building, you know, kind of disappeared from the limelight. It stayed in the possession of Roland West. Roland West remarried another actress named Lola Lane. When he died in 1952, she remarried. She then, uh, you know, converted to Catholicism and started and eventually deeded the property to uh, a a faith-based company. (laughs) Okay, production company. So the employees at Paulus Productions over since the 1960s have claimed that they had seen Thelma Todd's apparition near her, the staircase to her uh, quarters. That they've seen her and walking I, up and down yeah. the stairs. Yeah, no, I, I've heard stories that, that I, I've literally heard multiple stories of people seeing something that resembled somewhat of a woman, but, but kind of opaque, would speed down the stairs and kind of rush towards one of the doors, and then it would vaporize or disappear, you know. The other thing I've and, heard is they smell exhaust fumes near the garage. 
Yeah, that's another that's another claim is that the garage um people have thought they've heard uh the sound of an old older car motor starting up or running and they've smelled the fumes, you know, carbon monoxide fumes uh around that area. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now recently they, you know, it the building sold and they actually auctioned off pieces from Thelma Todd's upstairs area. I actually know someone that owns pieces no. from that auction. Someone you yes. that you still talk to? Yes. Can we yes. Oh, I was just gonna say our next little meetup is gonna be at that building. I wanna I wanna okay. I kinda wanna go there and maybe they'll let us in. We can at least try, right? No, let's do it. I want to do a photo shoot there. Oh, I want to perfect. do an homage to Thelma Todd. Oh, perfect. Let's do it. Yay. No, I, I'm serious. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, perfect. If you, if you don't reach outreach to them, I will. <laughs> I don't know. Which one of us is so, more convincing? I don't know. Let's try. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I'd love to, to get in there. And, um, I, I, you know, my heart just kind of broke. I'm glad that the piece pieces that were sold at auction that once belonged to Thelma Todd. I'm glad that at least one of the pieces landed in very good hands, someone that idolizes her and will take care of. And who is this? This is someone you still talk to? uh, Yeah, no, she's, she's a member of the Art Deco Society of Los Angeles. Uh, Would she possibly send us, send me a picture of what she has of Thelma Todd's? Yes. I'll, I'll talk to her about that. If she does, then I'll, I'll put it on the, um, on the website, the episode page, but it's so, I know a lot of people are probably not going to be as excited as, as I would be. Cause I know that the pod, again, the podcast generation isn't necessarily the generation that loves old movies or silent films or anything like that. But there's just so much history in Hollywood and LA. I mean, the stories, I mean, maybe because the people that lived during that time were more flamboyant and, more entertaining and there's tons of money and they could do tons of things. Maybe that's why the history right. is so fascinating. But I just always have thought of Thelma Todd. She, she came from a rather sheltered. She, her story isn't the same as a lot of girls who came to Hollywood who were running away from something. Thelma Todd wasn't running away from anything. She was beautiful. She was sheltered. She lived a nice life in Massachusetts and she wasn't stupid. She came and did her thing and, and did what she wanted to do, how she wanted to do it. Her one weakness was that she always fell for the bad guy and maybe it was entertainment for her to be involved with men that were probably not the best for her. She was part of that boozy generation. I mean, I I, I believe that had she lived, she would have been, you know, an alcoholic in her later years, just like, you know, a lot of people uh, from that generation, whether it be Buster Keaton or Marion Davies or or whomever. I mean, she was, um, uh, it was it was just part of the culture was to play hard and live hard. But she wasn't um, stupid. That's the one thing I can say is that she was not stupid. I mean, other than getting involved with people, she probably shouldn't have men. She wouldn't, shouldn't have gone, gotten involved with, but as far as her restaurant no, goes, she was and, very bright. She was, yeah. Yeah. And I don't, um, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe between bizarre Los Angeles and, in my little podcast, we can get some new followers and new interest in old Hollywood and, silent films and the people that lived during that time because they're a fascinating group of people. I mean, if I ask anybody who Thelma Todd is, they probably don't know, but she she was a fascinating character from our past and from 
Hollywood's past and I it's sad that she died. So she, I don't know if we mentioned she was only 29 when she died. See, I, I didn't put two and two together. I, it doesn't surprise me, but that, but she did die young. I yeah, know she that really young. she definitely was, um, still had many more great years ahead of her. Right. You know, on the same level as Carol Lombard or, you know, uh, one of my Betty other favorites. Davis. Yeah. But, but she was, like I said, she was well loved. I mean, she, among her friends and patrons at the restaurant were Clark Gable and and you know a lot of the a lot of the stars from back then. B. Daniels. I mean, I, I'm sure they you know they all were frequenting her place because it was beautiful. The quality was good, but they just liked her. Right. Right. Thank you so much, Craig, for joining me this week. We're gonna take a little break and then we're gonna actually record another episode. That will be our next episode on another story of haunted Hollywood and the, the legends and the people that lived back in the day. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Well, sure. Thank you for having me. And I, I always enjoy talking about ghosts and forgotten stories and the, the story behind the ghost stories, I should say. I know, we're kind of kindred souls. If anybody has anyone that you want to hear about that we can talk about in our next episode feel free to drop us an email at huntinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. And thank you so much for joining us. Hollywood has changed a lot since the time of silent screen actors. The streets are a bit grimier and the buildings may have changed. But if you look close enough, the glamorous stars of Hollywood's past still shine as brightly as they once did. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. Ghost.